Well, ladies and gentlemen, good evening. Welcome, everybody, to another summer lecture series. Okay? So this is a nice thing to do every summer. Last summer, we talked about St. Paul. Okay? And we went all across the journeys of St. Paul, and we uh, recounted uh, almost all of his... um, all of his letters. And, you know, I've got a whole lot of little series that I've done over the years. And this is one of my favorite. This one that I'm going to do this, introduce to you this summer. The Spiritual Doctors of the Church. Okay? Um, this series is like a retreat. Okay? In fact, it's like a retreat for me to give it. Okay? It really is. And I think that you're going to get a lot out of this. I do not have a book for you this summer. There's no book to go through. Unlike last summer with St. Paul, with the maps, with the names, with the roots, and the, all that kind of thing. It's, this summer, all you've got to do is show up and listen. Okay? Um, and what we're going to do is we're going to start with... Well, we're going to start with, of all of the spiritual doctors of the church, we're going to start with the one that I found to be the most popular in teaching. And that is St. Francis de Sales. Okay? Uh, I don't know what next summer is going to bring. Maybe we'll have a seminarian. If we have a seminarian, I always let the seminarian have something to do in the summer. I let the seminarian teach a course. So I thought, you know, I'll tell you what. We'll start with the, with the one that's most popular, St. Francis de Sales. Of the times that I've taught this in the past, he's been the one that people have liked the most. But uh, a lot of you might be wondering, what's a doctor of the church? Okay. And what's a spiritual doctor of the church? Let's take a little look at that question, just to kind of frame you and, and orient you here, okay? What's a doctor of the church? Well, you know, anybody who's in heaven is a saint, okay? However, there are some saints among the saints who stand out, head and shoulders above the rest, And uh, what the church has done is it's kind of designated these people and it's set them aside, not just as examples of holy living, but as particular ones to pay attention to in what they say. Okay. Now, these are called the doctors of the church. Currently, there's 35 doctors of the church. And, but it began, this whole idea of, the, idea of a doctor of the church began in the ancient church. Okay. So let, let's take a look at this real quickly. Back in the ancient church, there were seven saints who really stood out among the rest. Okay? Uh, there were four in the Western church. You know what I mean by Western, don't you? I mean centered in Rome. It, tangential little historical side note here. If you go back, if we could get in a little time machine, we could go back in history 1,500 years. We would find a church with a very, very vibrant intellectual center Uh, in Constantinople. Okay, so Greece, Turkey, these are the days before Islam, North Africa, and you'd find a church with a spiritual and intellectual center in Rome. And for lack of a better term, we're just calling them the Eastern Church and the Western Church. So in the Western Church, there was St. Gregory the Great, St. Ambrose, St. Jerome, and St. Augustine. And the church kind of held these ones up and they said, these saints are really worth paying attention to. In the Eastern Church, there were three saints. They're known as the Cappadocians. St. John Chrysostom, St. Basil, and St. Gregory Nazianzen. Okay. And what the idea was here was that these saints weren't just great examples to live by, but they taught something, something nobody else had ever taught. They wrote something down that was of benefit to the whole world, okay, to the whole church. As time goes by, uh, and by time going by, I mean like a thousand years go by, okay? We're, we're up into the 16th, uh, the 16th century here. Where the Pope is Benedict XIV. He's like, you know, we don't have to be locked into just seven of these guys. There have been saints down through the ages who have taught us great things, and they've been amazing examples of holiness. And in all goodness, we ought to name more doctors of the church. So they started naming more doctors of the church. And it was a decree of Pope Benedict XIV. And there were three basic conditions. Okay? First of all, great sanctity. And by sanctity, I mean even in, among the saints. All right? We're talking, they're already 
pros, right? This is already the professional leagues. We're talking the, the all pros. These are the all pros of sanctity. They really, really stood out. Uh, second thing was the church recognized them and, 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 and gave them that decree. And the third thing was, as I said, they've got something that no one's ever taught before that is of benefit to everybody. Okay? So they start naming more uh, doctors of the church. And you know, you can think of people like St. Thomas Aquinas or St. Albert the Great, these people who came along, magnificent teachers, proclaimed doctors of the church. Okay, so there's a doctor of the church. So I've got my little class I call the spiritual doctors of the church. Well, every doctor of the church is a spiritual doctor of the church, but in my little mind, there are six saints who among the doctors of the church stand out because their teaching is specifically about the spiritual life. Not necessarily about clarifying doctrine. Okay, um, Their teaching is specifically about how to live the spiritual life. And this is something that is of use to all of us. Okay, And uh, those six are uh, St. Bernard of Clairvaux, St. Catherine of Siena, okay? St. John of the Cross, St. Teresa of Avila, St. Therese of Lisieux, the little flower, and the saint we're going over this summer, St. Francis de Sales. Now, in the future, God willing and the creek don't rise, we'll go over all those saints, okay? But I wanted to start with uh, Francis de Sales. You know why I wanted to start with St. Francis de Sales? It's not just because of all the ones I've done, I found him to be the most well-received by people. But here's Francis de Sales' unique contribution to the church. In all of history... He's the first saint to explicitly address his spiritual counsel to lay people, people living in the secular world. Now, church is taught all along there is a universal call to holiness emphasized at Vatican II. You've heard this before, right? Yes? This is not news, right? If it's news, I've got good news for you. Everybody is called to the top of the spiritual stairs. Um, you do not ever want to think of any person as being a spiritual second-class citizen. Okay? The church has always taught that, but it hadn't ever been so clear and deliberate as it had when Francis de Sales started his writing. So that's what we're going to go over this summer. Eight weeks. Tonight's just an introduction. Okay? We're going to give you a little background, a little introduction to the life of St. Francis, a little overview of what we're going to do this summer. Okay? Um, but that was St. Francis de Sales, uh, his number one contribution. And, and you know, up until this time, if a, if, a, if a spiritual writer had written something, it was presumed they were writing a consecrated religious. Okay? Now, there was this underlying presupposition behind that, that if you weren't a consecrated religious, well, the spiritual life really wasn't for you. You, you weren't really... You weren't really as called as some people. And that's just flat out not true. And Francis de Sales, that's his great contribution. Okay? So, um, so we're going to go over some of Francis's writings this summer. And Francis de Sales has two main writings. Okay? Two main writings. And you'd be well advised to pick these, pick these books up, take a look at them. First main writing of Francis de Sales, Introduction to the Devout Life. Okay? A fantastic book. Second writing of St. Francis de Sales, okay, much, much longer, Treatise on the Love of God. And you can think of Introduction to the Devout Life as kind of like being uh, the, the Francis de Sales 101. Okay, that's where you want to begin in reading Francis de Sales. And Treatise on the Love of God is more advanced, picks up where Introduction to the Devout Life leaves off. This summer, we're going to get as far as we're going to get. Okay, I'll see how far we're going to get. We're not going to rush anything. We're going to take it one week at a time. We're going to take it one subject at a time, and I'll get as far as I get. Okay? He also has many, many sermons, uh, many, many uh, letters and, and little essays and things like that. Uh, but those two books, Introduction to the Devout Life and Treatise on the Love of God, are Francis's, um, uh, the, the, the sum total of what Francis has to say. Okay? So there's a little bit of background about what the class is going to be. What a spiritual doc, what a doctor of the church is, what I call a spiritual doctor of the church, uh, and a tiny little bit about Francis de Sales. Now, let's take a look at the life of Saint Francis de Sales. Okay, just to give you some background to put this in context. All right, 
Francis de Sales does not have what you would call an exciting life. Okay? He was never knocked off his horse like St. Paul. Uh, he was never a, you know, a sowing wild oats like uh, St. Augustine. You, you know about some of these saints, don't you? Okay. He, he was never... Francis de Sales, uh, he, he was pretty much on the straight and narrow his whole life. Uh, not much tension and drama, but still, what he had to say, I think you're going to find this fascinating. When we get into the real content of this in the upcoming weeks, you're going to think this stuff was written last week. Okay? Stuff was written 400 years ago, and it's going to seem so contemporary and so relevant that you're going to think it was, the thing that it was written last week. Okay? But Francis de Sales, uh, he was uh, of noble birth. All right? He was born on August 21st, 1567, in the Chateau de Sales in Savoy, France, near the border with Switzerland, and hence his name, Francis de Sales, because that's where he was born, the Chateau de Sales. He was born two months premature, God bless him. He just couldn't wait to get started. He just had to get going in this uh, work of evangelization. Okay? At the time it was part of France, um, um, at the time it, I'm sorry, at the time it was uh, in the Diocese of Geneva, uh, at the time it was officially uh, Switzerland, it contained part of France. Um, and this is 1567. Now, I don't know how well you know your church history, but there's something really amazing going on in the church at this time in history. Okay? This is what we call the Catholic Reformation or the Counter-Reformation. You can pick your favorite term. I had a church historian in the seminary who insisted that it be called the Catholic Reformation and not the Counter-Reformation. And he had his reasons, but you can call it either one. It doesn't bother me. But the idea is... What happened 50 years before 1567? What happened? Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses onto the door of the Wittenberg Cathedral, right? And the protest had begun in earnest. Once he made his bold stand, uh, the dominoes started to tip. First came Luther, then came Calvin, then came Ulrich Zwingli, uh, then came Henry VIII in France, uh, in, in, in England. And all of these, um, I'm, I'm sorry to say, largely political, largely politically motivated revolts against the church, but still, the church needed reform. And it, and it did reform. While the church was falling apart in Europe, okay, God raised up great saints. And this is really something to remember, just as a generality now, just as a tangent. When things get bad... Like right now, for example, okay, the greatness being made by God in the church. And you can see this in history. In times of great crisis, Francis of Assisi, for example. Francis rebuild my church. You know the story of the dream of Francis of Assisi, right? Okay. Now we've got the, 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 the Reformation going on. The church seems to be falling apart into schism. And God raises up. Francis de Sales, God raises up contemporaries of Francis de Sales at this time. John of the Cross, right? Teresa of Avila, Vincent de Paul. All these people making their way across Europe uh, at this time. Francis de Sales um, uh, was the first, the eldest of 13 children. And you thought you were busy, okay? But... uh, um, he, had, he had five. Five of his siblings died in infancy, and he was named for his father Francis, and he was also named for his mother Francis. Okay, they really liked the name. They also liked Francis of Assisi. Okay, uh, might seem a little bit odd. His father, at the age of his birth, um, I'm sorry, at the at the age of uh, his marriage, was 43, and his mother was 14. Okay. Yeah, just were different back then, right? Um, but Francis de Sales, he was a prodigy. Some of these saints were prodigies. You know, these saints were like a spiritual Rembrandt or a spiritual Mozart. He was a prodigy from a young age. Intellectually, he was just a, a, a sharp tack. And spiritually, he just had his head on straight. He was a special person. Okay? Um, one of his letters, he reveals that from the age of 12 years old, he's got a clear idea of what God wants him to do with his life. He says, by my twelfth year, I'd resolved so firmly to belong to the church that I would not have changed my mind even for a kingdom. 
by the time the grace had come to know a little of the fruit of the cross, that sentiment entered my soul and has never left me. Okay, so he knew he was going to be a priest from the very earliest age. Uh, but at the age of 13, at the age of 13 to 21, he begins to be a student of philosophy at the Jesuit College in Paris. Francis was a great scholar. He excelled in Latin. He excelled in his own native French. And he excelled in what are known as the arts of the nobility. The arts of the nobility at the time were uh, fencing, equestrian, and dancing. Okay? So you never thought of a doctor of the church cutting a slice of rug, but Francis de Sales was among the among who's out there doing it. Okay. Um, now, an interesting thing happens to him at the age of twenty. A temptation comes along to him at the age of twenty, and it changes his whole life. He has his temptation to believe that he is predestined to hell. You know about Calvinism, don't you? Predestination. God knows all things. He knows who you are. He knows why he created you. He knows all time. He knows whether you're going to heaven or whether you're going to hell. Okay, so John Calvin, he believes, uh, well, I guess that means we're all predestined, no matter what we do. I guess we show by our actions whether we're going to heaven or whether we're going to hell, but our actions themselves don't make any difference. And... Uh, Francis, he's got a very, 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 very intelligent mind. He begins to, to think about this. He's, he's terribly worried. I think he's predestined to hell. Now, this was a very, very, very attractive idea at the time. Um, Francis de Sales lived in an area of 25,000 Catholics. Okay, 25,000 Catholics in Savoy in France. Along comes Calvinism. And all but 200 of those people leave the Catholic Church and become Calvinists. You just got to kind of put that in context, okay? Uh, what, what, what is that? Uh, greater than 90%? Greater than 90%? So we got our, our St. Jude Church, and we, we gather up, say, 300 people at any given Mass, okay? A couple of years go by, and suddenly the number's down to 28. Hmm. Um, that would really, really be discouraging. So basically everybody, um, and this is a very widespread idea, he's, he's struggling, he's wrestling with this temptation, and the temptation breaks. He said it was because of the intercession of the Blessed Mother and a particular prayer that he said. It suddenly broke it instantly. And, he, and his prayer went like this. He wrote it down for posterity. He said, whatever may happen, my Lord, I will love you always. I will love you in this life even if it is not given me to love you in eternal life. So he says, Lord, even if you're sending me to hell, I'll love you from hell. And he says the moment that he made that prayer, it's, it, it, that this temptation lifted from him. And it changed his whole life because he began to realize just how much difference our actions make. And how we really do uh, choose our eternal destiny one decision at a time. You've probably heard it said, so an act, reap a habit. So a habit reap a character, so a character reap an identity, so an identity reap a destiny. Okay, so Francis, every action matters. It was a terribly important time in his life. So he goes from the University of Paris to the University of Padua in Italy, studies law, studies theology, takes a doctorate at the age of 24. 20,000 students in the University of Padua. 20, that's basically Virginia Tech, okay? Uh, 400 years ago. And uh, Francis, he faces a lot of temptations, as any 24-year-old guy is going to face. He says he had to firmly but resolutely decline the persistent attention of the ladies. Okay? So Francis knew where he wanted to go. And apparently, you know, maybe they saw him cutting a slice of rug and thought to themselves, he's looking good, pretty good to me. I, he's looking like he's on his way up. I might hitch my wagon to that star. So anyway, he goes back home at the age of 25. He becomes an attorney. He's admitted to the bar. He's admitted to the local senate. He's admitted to the local government. And his father has already chosen a girl for him to marry. Okay? And she is 14. All right? Don't ask me why they did this back then. But Francis politely declines and he explains to his father that he's going to become a priest. Now, dad's upset at this. Dad's upset at this. The firstborn, which Francis was, wasn't supposed to become the priest. It's such a different world, you know, when you start to think of it like this. The firstborn wasn't supposed to become a priest. The firstborn inherited the land. 
The firstborn inherited the title. The secondborn became the priest. The thirdborn became the priest. The twelfthborn became the priest. Whatever the case might be. But he eventually gives his blessing and his permission. So Francis is ordained a simple priest. He renounces his government office. He renounces his title as Lord Villa of Roger. Uh, he renounces all of his uh, worldly trappings. And he's simply known as Père Francis de Sales. Right? Simple Father Francis de Sales. And when he's ordained, he gets busy. He gets working. From the age of 27, he can't wait to tackle Calvinism. Okay, Because he's been through the spiritual anguish of, of, of thinking that his actions don't matter. Right? Um, he can't wait to go tackle. He can't wait to go tackle uh, to go tackle Calvinism, um, and uh, he uh, he has to get permission from the Vatican to read the writings of John Calvin. Okay, now this might sound strange to you, but how many of you heard of the Index of Forbidden Books? Okay, there was once such a thing as the Index of Forbidden Books, and at the time, all of Calvin's writings were on the Index. Only a bishop could read what's on the Index of Forbidden Books. So little Francis de Sales, he gets permission to read it. He wants to know the enemy's argument. He goes out to preach. He thinks he's going to conquer the world. And he runs into flat, persistent opposition. Okay? Um, but you've got to love this guy. I mean, this is someone who was so on fire to try to draw people to, to our Lord. He wouldn't give up. He goes out. He preaches. He preaches his lungs out. Preaches till he's blue in the face. And nobody listens. So you might imagine what that's like. So you know what he does? He writes out his sermons and he nails them onto trees. Okay, now this is before Facebook, right? <laughs> he uh, goes around to houses and he writes out little thoughts and he slips them under the door, right? Um, so, that, so that he can get his, get his message out. Um, he's doing anything he can to, to, uh, to get this message out. And um, he, enters, he engages Calvinist pastors in public debates and it goes very well. Okay, now you want to know one thing about Francis de Sales. He's known for his gentleness. Francis de Sales is known as the gentle doctor of the church. He had two qualities Francis did. Number one, remarkably gentle soul. Francis was like soothing balm, like a cool breeze. And number two, he was remarkably eloquent. So he gets up there in these debates... And with a disarming gentleness and with the power of a twisting of phrase, uh, he, does, he, does, he does very, very well. He even talks to the head of Calvinism, Calvin's successor in Geneva. His name is Theodore de Besa. And uh, he makes a tremendous amount of progress. He wins the guy's favor. Pretty amazing. With the power of his, uh, not only his persuasion, but of his soul. You know how the power of your soul is probably the most important thing of all in any influence with any other person drawing them close to Christ. Okay? This is a tangential, this is an aside, but whatever you say, whatever I say, whatever anyone says about spiritual life always comes reeking of the one who said it. <laughs> okay? um, and this is why some souls that are remarkably close to God can say the simplest thing, like Mother Teresa of Calcutta, can say the simplest things. And you say to yourself, um, I couldn't have said that, but powerful, powerful effect when she says it. Francis was like that too. Okay? And uh, Francis grow, develops a name for himself, and he gets named at the age of 30. At the age of 30, he gets named coadjutor. Do you know what a coadjutor is? A coadjutor is like the successor to a bishop. Okay? So um, if you get named coadjutor, let's say if somebody gets named coadjutor of Arlington. That means that everybody knows that the Bishop of Arlington is on his way out, the new guy is on his way in, and he's apprenticing. And it's only a matter of time before the one is going to resign and the other is going to be ordained. This happens at the age of 30. Okay? So Francis gets named at the age of 30, coadjutor of Bishop of Geneva. Uh, but he has to live in exile in France because the Calvinists would not brook any papists living in their boundaries. Okay? So he's living in exile in France, but still he's the Bishop of, he's the Bishop of Geneva, and he begins to live a reformed life. Now, um, part of the reforms of the Council of Trent were um, reforms of the clergy. Now, at the time, as I'm sure you know, bishops, they were princes, right? They had palaces. You ever toured Europe and you've 
been to some of these European towns and there's the bishop's house. And it doesn't look all that different from the governor's house, right? Um, or the, 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 the baron's house, the bishop's house. The bishop was a prince. He had many overtones of a secular ruler. He had pageantry, he had coats of arms and all the like. Uh, Francis lives a visibly reformed life, okay? He tells the people uh, living in the bishop's household not to dress like stewards of a royal household. Francis starts to enact immediately some of the things that were gone over by the Council of Trent, like the training of the clergy. Now, I went to seminary, right? Every priest these days goes to seminary. Did you know there was a time before priests had to go to seminary? The Council of Trent, you've heard of the Council of Trent, right? Council of Trent, 1546 to 1563, uh, basically the church's reaction to Protestant Reformation, officially its reaction. The Council of Trent instituted the education of the clergy in seminaries because before that, clergy were apprenticed under other priests. Okay? So, if you wanted to become a priest, you would approach your local church and you would apprentice under the priest of that local church. And when he thought you were ready, he would present you to the bishop for ordination. All right? Which is fine if your local priest is St. Augustine. Okay? Not so fine if your local priest is... I won't mention any names. Okay? We'll, <laughs> we'll skip right over that. All right? But uh, he, he trained the local clergy. He also told his priests to be on the lookout for devout lay people to instruct and recruit them and to develop and to de- dedicate themselves to formation of holiness in the laity. Okay? He was already ahead of his time. And as an aside, that's what something like this we're doing here this summer is all about. This is not a little cultural experience for us. What I'm hoping is that when you catch the spirit of Francis de Sales... Uh, you'll be like a, a conductor of the, the spiritual power of Francis out into your lives. Okay? Here you are listening to a priest on a, on a Tuesday night, right? sitting in a, in a dusty lecture hall. You're already several standard deviations past the mean as far as uh, the rank and file, as far as what most people would be doing. Hey, God wants to use you. Jesus has very few friends in our time. He wants those he has to be good ones. And so he was, Francis wanted to instruct lay people in holiness for the sake of the lay people getting out there and instructing other people. All right? So that's, he was already ahead of his time. Um, and uh, people would approach Francis and they would ask him for help. And he would begin to give spiritual direction. Among them, one woman whose name was Jane Francis de Chantal. Who's heard of her? She's a canonized saint. Okay, Mother of four and a widow... And under Francis's direction, she became a canonized saint. And so she was one of his spiritual directees. And they had one of the great spiritual friendships of the history of church. You know, Francis de Sales and Jane Francis de Chantal. It's up there with Francis of Assisi and St. Clair or Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross. Um, and uh, and he, starts, he starts writing things down. This is the beginning of some of his greatest writings. Okay. Uh, he befriends St. Vincent de Paul in 1618, becomes friends with Vincent de Paul. And uh, he says that uh, you know, he's, he's beginning to experience, when he meets Vincent de Paul, he says he's beginning to experience the, the effects of old age. Okay? Um, and Francis dies at the age of 55. 55 in 1622. Now back then, nobody really knew what you died of. Right? You just died. Okay? Um, and uh, some people think it was a stroke. No one's really quite sure. Uh, but he had a, a tremendous reputation for holiness. He's declared uh, a blessed in 1661, canonized in 1665, declared a doctor of the church by Pius IX in 1877. Okay. So, how far are we around here? We're still on the, first, for, for, on the front here. Okay. Um, let's take a look at Francis's writings. Okay, let's transition now from his life to some of the things that he wrote. Okay. There was an experience Francis had, another experience Francis had that changed his whole life. One day he was walking in the mountains uh, outside of Annecy in France. And he walks into this, he meets this peasant woman living up in the mountains, living in a little house. And he is astounded by the knowledge and the holiness of this woman who's never had any schooling. Where'd she learn this? Where did she learn it? Answer Holy Spirit. 
And he begins to realize that this woman has more knowledge and more holiness than any of his professors did at Padua or at Paris. And he really begins to realize that holiness is intended for everybody. And this is where he gets his idea for writing the introduction to the devout life. Now that book began uh, as some little thoughts on spiritual direction. Okay, a woman said, uh, I'm going away on a trip. I can't come to spiritual direction. Can you write some thoughts down? And so Francis writes his thoughts down, sends it, sends it to her as a letter. He sends more letters to her. She gets these letters and she realizes that this is great stuff and she transcribes them and copies them and gives them to her friends. Okay? Um, and then friends start asking for these letters. And so he begins to take all these letters that he's written, revises them, edits them, compiles them, and it becomes one of the greatest spiritual books that you'll ever read, Introduction to the Devout Life. Okay? Published in 1609, it's never been out of print. It's never been out of print. And the great value of this, as I've said before, is this one's written for the laity. Okay? Now here's what Francis said. He said... Before this, his book that he's writing, Introduction to the Devout Life, those who've written on devotion, devotion is a term I'll talk about in a second, okay? Those who've written on devotion have written to those withdrawn from the world. As I said before, monks, uh, those living in cloisters, convents, monasteries. He says, my purpose is to instruct those who live in towns, those who live in families, those who live in court, and by their state of life are obliged to live an ordinary life as to outward appearances, frequently the pretext of some supposed impossibility keeps them from thinking they will ever undertake a devout life. Now, does that sound familiar? Under the pretext of some supposed impossibility, they think I'm never going to undertake a devout life. Now, what do you hear? People say, I don't, I, I don't have time to pray, Father. I've got to take my kids to soccer. Right? I don't have time to go to... My favorite is I don't have time to go to Mass. Now, if there's ever a place in the, in the, in the, on God's green earth that, that, that you've got a zillion opportunities for Mass, it's here. Okay? We've got 24 hours of Mass opportunities. You got, anyway, uh, and it's, this is happening in his own time. This is happening in his own time. And you know, the lay people will say, um, I don't have time for prayer. I don't have time for holiness. I don't have time for any of these things. And what are they effectively saying? That's for the priests, right? That's for the, the priests will worry about that, as if to say, I'm, I'm excused. Well, you know what the priests say. See, the priests say that's what the religious do, right? The priests, see, the priests, people, the priests will get together and we'll say, oh, you know, I've got to run bingo. I've got to change light bulbs. Um, uh, I, I, can't, I can't be concerned with, with this kind of thing. That's for the religious. And you know what the religious say? The religious say, oh, that's for the monks. Right? I've got to teach my class. I've got to get my, my course taught right here. I, I've got to go to my conference. That's for the monks. So Francis gets up there and he says, stop making excuses. You can do this. You can do this. And that's what the message is from, that's what we're going to talk about this summer. Okay? Just, that, just that exact message. You, right where you are, in your circumstances, just as you're living, can follow our Lord's call um, to the, to the highest stages of the spiritual life. Now, this is one of the greatest graces that's happened since the Second Vatican Council. Okay? The Second Vatican Council had an emphasis on the universal call to holiness. Okay? And what is holiness, really, other than closeness with God? Sometimes when you, when you say holiness, people don't know what that means. Um, and people used to think that holiness was associated with holy orders or religious profession, but Vatican II says, no, it's associated with Baptism, right? So that's you. And, um, and Francis de Sales, Vatican II practically quotes Francis de Sales on this subject. John Paul II, writing in his uh, encyclical letter, Novo Millennio Iniunte, he puts it this way. I love this. How many of y'all have been to a baptism? And you've seen the baptism. You know the, the, the general flow of the ceremony of baptism? And they ask the parents, uh, are you prepared to, to care for this child? They say yes. And they ask the godparents, are you prepared to be helpers to the parents and you raise this child and they say yes. And John Paul too, he says, do you know what they're really asking when, he's, when, when they ask those questions? He says, what they're really asking is, are you resolved to be holy? Okay? 
Are you resolved to be holy? And it's totally wrong for a Christian to think that they should be content with a shallow prayer life and a shallow spirituality that is insufficient to face the challenges of the modern world. And I've, you know quite well, you don't, I don't have to tell you that I've found this, you've found this, right? And people living lives of quiet desperation, as I've said many times. Didn't God want you to live like that? You think there's a solution? Yes, there is. Okay? There certainly is. And he wants to call you to it. Okay, so Francis is trying to help people to draw to this. And so he writes this book, Introduction to the Devout Life, and he addresses it to someone he calls Philothea. The name will show up throughout the book if you get the book, if you want to read the book. The name Philothea shows up. Philothea just means lover of God, okay? Um, And that's just what Francis wanted to uh, spread to his readers. The first thing Francis does in his writings is he, he, he tackles this idea of devoutness. Okay, what does it mean to be devout, right? What does it mean... Uh, to be uh, devoted. It's not necessarily a positive word, okay? Um, When you think about being devout, uh, I mean, you all are devout, here you are, Uh, but most people, they they, they think that, I don't want to be devout, man, what am I going to be weird or something like that? I want to be normal. I want to be, Francis Francis takes this idea and tells us what devout really means, okay? Okay. um, and, and here's what he says. First thing he does is he attacks the false idea of what devotion is. What devotion is not. And here's what he says devotion is not. That's when um, someone will take one single aspect of, of the spiritual life and overemphasize it to the neglect of other things. So maybe you'll find someone who's really devoutly praying in church, uh, but they're kind of a sourpuss, right? Or um, um, maybe you'll find somebody who's very, very generous, very, very good, but you know their moral life is a little bit loosey-goosey. Francis talks about this and he debunks this. He says, this is what devotion is not. The one who fasts, for example, will believe he's devout simply because he fasts. Even if his heart is full of hatred, he will not moisten his tongue with wine for sobriety's sake or even water, but he will not hesitate to plunge it into his neighbor's blood through slander and calumny. Hmm. (laughs) Another esteems himself devout because he multiplies prayers and yet afterwards speaks arrogantly to his employees or to his neighbors. Another person will gladly take alms from his wallet to give to the poor, but refuses to draw kindness from his heart to pardon his enemies. The person over there, however, will pardon his enemies, but will not pay his creditors, unless compelled to do so by law. Okay? So Francis says there's no compartmentalization of the spiritual life. If you don't do it all, uh, you don't do it at all. Sometimes I've, I've, heard it say, I've heard it put like this. Vices never travel alone. If somebody's dishonest, if somebody's greedy, if somebody's unchaste, if somebody's proud, if somebody's slothful, whatever it is, they never have just that fault. Vices never travel alone. They always travel in groups. Okay? And Francis is saying this too. There's no compartmentalization Uh, of the spiritual life. He says, devotion is nothing else than that spiritual agility and vivacity by which charity works in us. Or we work by her aid with alacrity and affection. A devout person shows a cheerfulness and alacrity, alacrity is another word for eager, an eagerness in the performance of charitable actions. This charity is a spiritual fire. And when inflamed, becomes devotion. Okay, now that's what we want. Imagine... If, uh, if people worked as hard at being charitable uh, as they did at making closing the next sale or making the next deal in the world, what kind of a world would we live in? Okay? Imagine if people worked as hard uh, at, be, at, at, at being charitable as they did um, in uh, so many of the worldly endeavors that they, that they undertake. Okay. Um, you could say, in a sense, that all of this is a response. You could say the whole spiritual life is a response to this question. What do you want? Right now, right where you sit. Your spiritual life is pretty much going in that direction. Amor pandus meum. My love is my weight. What you love, but you could say what you have eagerness for and affection for, I'll tell you what you love. Okay? What do you want? What do you want? And when you want God with your whole heart, that's when you find him. Okay? He says... And everyone is called to this, but not in the same way. There's no, un- there's no uh, cookie cutter for this. He says, look, devotion can be exercised in different ways by the gentleman, the worker, the servant, the prince, the widow, the young girl, the married woman, 
Not only is this true, but the practice of devotion must be adapted to the strengths and activities and duties of each particular person. Do you think, Philothea, that it would be appropriate for a bishop to want to live in solitude like a Carthusian monk? Or for married people to practice the poverty of the Capuchin Franciscans? Or for a worker or a craftsman to spend their days in church like a religious? Or for religious to be constantly preoccupied with temporal affairs? Devotion spoils nothing when it's true. Quite the contrary, it perfects everything. When it proves incompatible with one's legitimate vocation, this is simply because it's false devotion. Caring for one's family is more peaceful. Love between spouses is more sincere. Service to the state is more faithful. All occupations are more agreeable. Okay, so often people think of God as a competitor to what they're supposed to do in their life. Okay? But God isn't a competitor. He doesn't compete with it. He perfects it. So when you're properly living what Francis says devotion, it's going to make you a better husband, better spouse, better priest, better parent, better child, better student, better employer, better employee, better citizen. It's going to be a beautiful thing. Okay? When it's true and when it's not, it's not real devotion. Okay? And he tries to make this point clear. He goes all through the Bible and he says there are these saints that were, that, were, uh, that, were, that were out there in the world like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and Sarah and Rebecca and Joseph. And he lists a number of saints. I think, I think my notes are on the back side now. Let me, let me flip here. He talks about saints that were out there in the world like Louis, King of France. And he says that, you know, these uh, these. Oh, these guys went off to the monastery thinking they were going to become holy and they lost their souls. They would have been a lot better if they'd stayed in the world in the midst of crowds. Okay? Um, so even though living in the midst of crowds may have offered them little in the way of perfection, many, many have done so. Okay, so here's what we're going to do over the next seven weeks, all right? Um, we're going to go over, we're going to start with introduction to the devout life. If I can get further than that, I'll get further than that, all right? Um, but uh, actually, just first, first little way of intro. Francis? gives a couple of important, important ideas here. Um, he says, if you're interested in this sincere following of our Lord, you're going to need two things. Number one, you're going to need companionship. Number two, you're going to need guidance. Okay? Nobody walks this path alone. You need good spiritual friends. Okay? Nobody walks this path alone. Um, you also need somebody to guide you. Um, you need a spiritual director. Now, he says specifically a spiritual director. I know it's not possible for everyone to have a spiritual director. But you still want to have somebody who you're going to uh, for guidance for these questions. That, uh, that can ha- that, because you're going to have questions that come up. Okay? He says one in 10,000 people are qualified to do this. How do you find one? You have to want it. You have to pray for it. Okay? And you can find this uh, important advice that only he can give. Uh, but you need spiritual friendships, too people you can go to and, and who are struggling to live the spiritual life right there along with you. Um, in the monastery, they say that you shouldn't have what they call particular friendships. Who's ever heard that phrase before? Particular friendships. So if you're in the monastery and you're too close a friend with somebody, they'll kind of approach you, the abbot will approach you and say, you know, what, what is this? Why are you guys so close? And the idea there is that in the monastery you're walking on a flat level ground, spiritually speaking, there is far fewer temptations, there are far fewer distractions, and you really don't need a close spiritual friend in the monastery. If you've got a close spiritual friend in the monastery, chances are it's a distraction. I used to be in the monastery very briefly, as I mentioned before in, from the pulpit, and uh, when I left the monastery, I said, you know, I don't think this is for me, I'm going back to my parish. And you know what the one thing the, the abbot said to me? He says, are you sure you want to go back there? I said, yeah, I think so. I'm pretty sure I want to go back there. He goes, there's so many distractions out there. And I, you know, I told him I think this is what I'm called to do. But that's what he said. There's so many distractions. Out here in the world, we're not walking on a flat spiritual ground. We're walking up a steep spiritual slope with lots of hazards, lots of treachery, lots of opportunity for falling. And Francis says you need friends to help you along the way. Okay, so let's take a quick look at this uh, introduction to the devout life, Okay. It's divided into five parts. So we're going to go through these five parts in no particular, uh, no particular speed. It's not like week one, two, three, four, five, or anything like that. We'll get through them when we get through them. We'll get as far as we get. Okay? But part number one 
of introduction to the devout life is changing your desires. If you want to grow close to Christ, you've got to want it. Okay? How do you want it? He says, well, turn away from mortal sin. Turn away from venial sin. And turn away even from the affection for sin. That is, even from the idea uh, that sin is something good. He's not talking about weakness here. He's talking about will. Right? And there's a problem, actually, that uh, one of the biggest problems to overcome, spiritually speaking, in people is the idea that somehow sin is a good thing that's being, that's being kept from you. And one of the first things Francis wants to tell you is, listen, sin never helps. Sin always hurts. To want it, to even have an affection for it, is to have an affection for something that's hurting you. Right? So get rid of moral sin, get rid of venial sin, uh, and get rid of even the desire for sin. And he talks about the... the he's got some amazing images um, of, of how sin affects your relationship with God. Um, how sin affects your relationship with God, how it kind of poisons and weakens your relationship with God. And he, and he draws you into this by telling you um, about... He meditates on, on the fact that you've been created by God. Just slow meditation on the fact, you know what? There was once a time when you didn't even exist. And out of absolutely nothing, God called you into being. And he gave you a mind, and he gave you a will, and he gave you a heart, and he gave you freedom. And now is the time when you exercise that. Okay? And at the end of all of this, and no one knows when, there will be death, there will be judgment, there will be heaven, and there will be hell. This is how he coaxes you to kind of focus your desires, realize the shortness of your life. It's kind of a sobering reality. You can sit here and you can think, you look across this room, and in a short period of time, heaven alone knows when, every last one of us will be forever either in heaven or in hell. And that's a fact. Okay? And Francis tells you, listen, let's use that to focus our desires while we have this life. Okay? Um, and if you want God, you, you know, sometimes I find people, they, they say they can't overcome this sin, they can't overcome this sin, they can't overcome this sin. And the problem, often, is they really don't want to overcome it. They really don't want to. Okay? So he tries to focus you to want that. Okay? So, uh, so after that, he focuses on prayer. What prayer is, why prayer is essential, Different kinds of prayer, prayer in common, prayer that prayer alone, troubles in prayer, the importance of mass, the importance of communion, the importance of confession. Part number three, okay, is about action, right? And this is the most fun part of the whole course. Okay, this is where it's really specific about stuff. It talks about virtues that we should live by and how we, how we should live them. Things like patience and humility and gentleness and anxiety and worry and poverty and chastity and obedience according to your state of life and true friendship and false friendship and how to know the difference and good conversation and bad conversation and how to know the difference. Okay? And little things like uh, f- flirting and whether you should or not and gossiping and clothes and rash judgments and good recreation and good use of your time and bad recreation and bad use of your time. I would be fascinated to know what Francis de Sales would think of the internet. You know, I mean, it would be fascinating, really, uh, because there's such a potential for good or bad with that. Um, and you can almost see now what he's doing here. Okay, uh, change your desires. All right, that is focus. Right, prayer. Load your gun and action. Now shoot. Right? Get, get, get busy. Um, part four, temptation. A, a, a subject people frequently have trouble with. What to do about temptation. What to worry about with temptation. What not to worry about with temptation. What to do with feelings of dryness. What to do with feelings of happiness. Okay? Part five, one of the most important parts, resolutions and perseverance. Take a good look at who you are. Take a good look at your attitude towards yourself, God, and others. Okay? What motivates you to act? Why do you do what you do? See it in light of eternity. See it in light of God's plan for you. This fifth part is like spiritual counsel that he gives. It would almost be like you could take it a day, okay, and someone could like record you, okay, like the NSA, okay, or something like that. Somebody could record you and then play back you, okay, what you've done, what you've said your whole day, um, and give you almost like an external third-person perspective. 
why is this married person saying this? Why is this uh, priest doing that? Why is this single person saying, acting, thinking that way? Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? This kind of objectivity is a great, great help. That's in the, uh, that's in the, fifth, that's in the fifth part. Okay? Um, so, so, yeah, that basically brings us to approximately an hour. I'm basically going to keep these to an hour every time. And so starting next week, we're going to start with introduction to the devout life. We're going to start with the meditations uh, of, changing, of changing your desires, okay? Um, uh, death, judgment, heaven, and hell, freedom, creation, all those kinds of things. And we're just going to proceed along, uh, well, as best we can, all right? Take this for, uh, take this for eight, eight weeks, and I really hope, I, I'm, I'm certain that you're going to find it to be good. This is, this is, this is, this is uh, really remarkably... Uh, disarmingly helpful stuff. I think it, I really think you're going to find that to be the case. Um, let's see. Anybody have any questions for me? So far, so good. Yeah. Good enough for one day. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Francis de Sales. No, Francis de Sales. Uh, he was a diocesan bishop. Okay. And a lot of people have fallen in his spirit. Um, uh, the, 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 uh, well, Francis, you, you have to figure that uh, Francis of Assisi, as a reformer, is going to be a model for any reformer, especially in simplicity. Um, but Francis de Sales himself was not a Franciscan. Okay, yeah. So did he find it, uh, did he found the oblates, or did, are they just following No, they, they, they pretty much just followed him. Uh, Francis de Sales, people followed in the spirit of Francis de Sales. The Oblates of Francis de Sales, the Salesians of St. John Bosco, the spirit of Francis de Sales. It was Francis's gentleness and wisdom that inspired many, many people uh, in, in the years to come. But he himself didn't do that. He, he himself didn't start an order. Yeah. Yeah? Excuse me? I call this, Gab- I call this Gabriel. Okay? <laughs> Now, uh, it's always more fun when you're here, but yes, okay? Yeah, and you can go to fatherhudgens.com. That's spell out the word father, not just F-R, fatherhudgens.com, okay? And there's a link on our website. All the better, yep, yep. Okay, now don't everybody go home and wait for it to be posted online or I'll stop, <laughs> or I'll stop recording. Now, um, uh, in, in past years, good enough for one day? Okay, let me just stop the recording then.